If you're looking for great Christian content, we want to encourage you to check out peachtreepress.org. Peachtree Press LLC offers digital products, journals, books, Bible study guides, sermon outlines, Christian blogs, and church notebooks for children and adults. Some products are also available as print on demand. Peachtree Press is a sponsor of this program and a partner in offering authentic Christian content. For more information, check out peachtreepress.org. Welcome back, rappers, to our fourth season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, please hit that subscribe button or follow us for content on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com for sermons, weekly blogs, books, study guides, and lots of free stuff. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's program. Hey friends, welcome back to the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. We are currently in a series on the book of Ezra. And so this particular series will last for 10 straight episodes and we'll do a summary of the book of Ezra and some commentary on the book. We'll also set up a new series after this that will be on the book of Nehemiah. So you'll get a chance to be able to see this part of history and also be able to see the application for us in the church today. We hope you enjoy it. Hope you're having a good day today. Um, uh, really excited about our study. We've enjoyed, I have enjoyed anyway, going through uh, the book of Ezra. And I know that I'm looking forward to hitting Nehemiah too as soon as we finish uh, this book. And if you are, uh, you know, if you have some time, uh, Esther's a good study along with these two as well. But we're focusing mainly on Ezra and Nehemiah and some of the spiritual activities of the uh, the nation of Israel. I call Ezra the second exodus because it's the second time that God removes his people from a pagan land and returns them home. Uh, in this case, of course, he's returning them to Jerusalem. And as we begin, uh, I want to note one thing, uh, and that is that as you go through Ezra, you're going to see, maybe your Bible does this, uh, it does in mine anyway, it puts kind of in brackets the letters or the um, decrees that are given by the kings or those that are given by the leaders in Israel. And I love that because it gives me an opportunity to see, kind of like if you've ever watched a program on television and they say there was a note that was written or a document and it kind of flies up on the screen and you can see the document. That's what they're doing for us, is showing us these are the documents. These are the decrees that were written. And we're giving a word-for-word illustration or example of these letters being written. And it also shows us Ezra's attention to detail, and I I will say this over and over, you'll hear me say this a lot, Ezra is one of the greatest unsung heroes of the Bible. Uh, He's one of them that helped to protect and to contain these documents and was able to put them in a specific order that they could be read and they could be studied, and so we owe him a huge debt of gratitude uh, for his his, um, putting things together. I also believe he's the chronicler. I believe he he uh, probably wrote First and Second Chronicles, and so he really does a great job of showing us the rich history of Israel. To this point, uh, we have noticed some of the things that have happened both in Israel and uh, in Jerusalem and uh, in Persia. We're noticing that there's this great contention between the people that are just trying to build back the temple and worship in spirit and in truth, and those that are in natives to the region that are saying, we don't want you to do it. And along with that, you've got the people in Persia that are basically trying to ride the fence. Remember, it is the king who told them they could come back and build. Uh, the next king uh, puts a hold on it, and now we're to another king 
who's saying, let me get a few facts first before we proceed with it. And the reason why I want to address this right now is because it's, it gets worse in this book. It gets worse in Nehemiah, and it always does when there are politics involved. In fact, there are many times, even in our own, maybe in our own conversations with people, that we will touch a nerve or someone will touch our nerve when we talk about politics, and it becomes somewhat painful if you are hard-headed and you don't like what the other person's saying or who they stand for or what they stand for, more importantly. And so this, come, this goes to this back and forth of debate. Uh, we see it today. If, I don't know how many of you are on Twitter. I don't use Twitter as much anymore. But it is, uh, at times, you can just picture, in my mind anyway, I see when you read a tweet and then a retweet or a quote underneath it, I, I want to see them with boxing gloves, you know, because it's like they say something and boom, and then they say something else and boom, and it's just like a boxing game back and forth, and you can read 200 or 300 things down through there. So politics obviously gets people stirred up. Another topic that people get stirred up about is religion. That's one of those things, kind of another taboo subject, and here you have both in one. It's a political problem. It's a religious problem. And if you want to take a step further than that, this becomes a problem of race. This becomes a problem of prejudice against the locals and the Jews who are returning to their homeland. And so a lot of things playing out here, and Ezra's doing his very best to show that it was a problem everywhere they went. Uh, the Jews didn't fit in in their home, and they didn't fit in in Persia, and they believe God is calling them to rebuild the temple, and now they seem to reach a, uh, a stopping point again and again and again. And sometimes when you're just trying to do the right thing, the devil is going to put things in your pathway to make you want to quit, and that's what's happening here. And so people do get consumed by politics. Uh, they get consumed by things of a religious nature. We put all that into one, and this is a perfect uh, mic-mash potpourri of disaster. It, it's just not going to work. At some point, somebody's going to have to bend, and as we read through it, we're rooting for the Jews. We're re rooting for the Israelites. Uh, we have done a good job about presenting the Israelite viewpoint. I want us to pause for just a moment and think about what it was like for the Samaritans who stayed behind. They stayed behind. They didn't have to go to captivity. They weren't imprisoned. They got to remain on their land. They also were able to raise their children. Now, they intermarried with the pagans, but they were able to stay on their land. They were able to raise their children, and they were there through all of the heartache and all of the disappointment and all of the frustration. The temple's destroyed. That's okay. We'll just go over here at Mount Gerizim. We'll just build another one, and we'll worship God there. Uh, many of them were not... Uh, in favor of idols. Some were, some weren't. So there is, we might say, even a remnant among those left behind that hadn't fully given themselves over uh, to paganism. And now here come the Jews who've been gone for 70 plus years and say, we're back. We want our house back. We want our farms back. We want our vineyards back. I'm pretty sure the cattle over there look like the ones I had 70 years ago. I want those back. And so now as you come back into this territory, you have all kinds of issues that are coming up, and there is no one to be able to answer those requests and those problems. There is no judge setting at the city gates, as there was in uh, times prior to this, because the Jews are not in control anymore. They're having to get word back to the king or to a governor 
that can then make a decision and pass it back to them. So it is painful to read this when you realize between the chapters are months and even years before decisions are made. So I guess I say all that to say, if you think Washington's bad, <laughs> if you think they're difficult in our country, imagine living in this time when nothing is getting done. So we said last time in chapter 5, some of the elders get together and they say, we're going to do this anyway, with or without approval from the king. They tell the king what we're going to do. And now we have Darius who's going to reply to them about his uh, reservations, we'll say, to what's going on. If I can find the clicker. All right, let's focus on the first 12 verses of chapter 6 just first to see the, uh, the letter that Darius is going to write. It says, then King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at Akmatha, in the palace, that is the province of Media, remember it's the Medes and the Persians, in Media, a scroll was found, and in it a record was written thus. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offer sacrifices, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid. Its height, 60 cubits, its width, 60 cubits, with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. Mm. Verse 5, also let the gold and silver and articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple which is in Jerusalem, and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its own place, and deposit them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tadaniah, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Banzai, and your companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you should do for the elders of the Jews for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to these men so they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, and lambs, for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, uh, wine and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be put, pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it and let his house be made refuse heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or destroy this house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree, let it be done diligently. Now, remember that the, the accusation was that these people were troublemakers and that if Darius did anything, it was just to get them out of this uh, region. He didn't want him in Persia anymore. He wanted him to go home. That's not the case. We've read through, we looked at the beginning of Ezra, and it's clear that he just wanted to do the right thing. He hadn't taken him prisoner. That was the Babylonians. 
It's kind of like if you ever see a, a country invade another cr- country and there's prisoners in their jail and they go, well, we, we have a different law system. We don't know what you do. You know, what, what are you here for? And so they just unlock the doors and set them free. And that's kind of what's happening here. Darius says, I have nothing against the Jews. I have no problem with letting them go home. And while there are people working on the inside, Ezra's one, Nehemiah, of course, is the cupbearer to the king, we'll note later. But these individuals that are within the Persian kingdom are saying, these are people that were removed from their home. They were enslaved by the people. Let's send them back. And when we send them back, let's give them everything we took. And the king says that's a great idea. So he goes into the temple or into his treasury house, pulls out the, well, we would see the candlestick, the table of showbread, all the items, and says, now I want you to take them. I love the word deposit, you know. I want to know that it is handled by our people, the Persians, and placed specifically in that temple exactly where it's supposed to be. So that's the decree. Uh, A couple of notes. One is, he says, let it be done out of the king's treasury. Darius isn't king anymore, right? So you would think if the king's reading this decree and he says, well, that's Darius's problem, you know? And usually when someone ascends to the throne or ascends to the position of leader of a nation, they will almost always, let me, let me strike that, they will always blame the prior administration, They will always blame whoever was there first. Well, if you knew the mess that we got ourselves into, oh, we walked into all this problem. So Darius could have taken that route and said, you know, this is out of my treasury, and once I'm gone, let it go. He could have said, uh, this is what I felt at the time was right for the nation of Persia, and this is the decision that was made by me. But that's not what Darius does. Darius says, this is not a request This is an edict, a decree that is set in stone, that is sealed with blood, that anyone who challenges my word, remember he's been dead a long time, anybody who challenges my word or the decree that I have put in stone, the law of the Persians that I have put in place, then you need to go to their house, rip a two by four from their home, put it in the middle of the street and hang them on it. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? He also says, let it be known that if he's not king, whatever reparations, whatever needs to be given, will be given by the next king after him. And he says that also, worship should start again. And he says, I want this nation to provide the animals for worship. Now we're 70 years into the future, okay? Plus, 70 plus years into the future. A lot of the people that are here, that are coming back, They weren't born in this land. They're not from here. But the king says, I want us to take care of these people as long as it is possible. So he gives a decree to the next group behind him. Those kings then pass it to the next behind them. And this goes on for years and years until they return uh, the whole nation to Jerusalem. And so the king basically makes it so difficult, so difficult, that no other king after him would try to go against it. Uh, I wonder sometimes when you read uh, some of these historical things, if this edict or this decree was placed somewhere else. It's always convenient that whenever uh, it, something is needed to be read or something is needed to be shown, it's, you can't find it. It's always gone. We don't know what happened to it. So this decree has been, uh, at least this version, this, this copy of it had been hidden away. They find the decree 
and they read it. But surely somebody else had a copy of this, right? I mean, Ezra is a scribe. He could have found one. Mordecai is also a scribe later in Esther's book. Somebody could have found these documents. But for whatever reason, it's until they get to the king and they say, Hey, King Darius, we need to know, will you find this document and will you bring it to the front? What positive aspect is it for Darius to show this letter, this edict, this, this law to the people? Is it good for him? Is it advantageous to him politically? When you think about it, basically he said, we're going to give them everything we can, and then I'm going to tax the people, and we're going to take the tax money, and we're going to help them even more. Do you think that sets well with the Persians? No. It doesn't sell with the Persians. They're not happy about it. And the king says, also, what I'm going to do is whatever can't be covered by that tax he mentions is going to come out of his own purse. He says, I feel like we really need to help these people. So he's upset the Persians. No doubt he's upset the Samaritans because they've been petitioning him not to do it. But he says, this is the right thing to do. Ezra is showing us that sometimes doing the right thing offends everybody. Sometimes doing what is right is going to upset the apple cart. And, and, you know, it's always right to do the right thing. And so he says, this is something we need to do. Even though it was not stuff he took, even though it was not their nation that was a part of this, he says, this is the right thing to do, is to take care of these people. Uh, the other thing, one more thing real quick before we open it up. He says, I want the God, their God, to be worshipped. This king realizes that the God of heaven, the creator of all things, is the God of the Jews. And that's a bold statement considering the fact that it would be Darius and uh, Daniel who decides to erect an image in his name. Nebuchadnezzar does that, erect an image in his name. So the kings of Persia wrestled with the fact that their people wanted them to be gods. And not only the Medes and the Persians, the same thing happens with the Greeks, and the same thing happens with the Romans. History repeats itself. And the Romans begin to build giant temples for their Roman Caesars and called them gods. They thought of all the Roman uh, Caesars as gods. They were the, 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 the greatest humans that ever walked the face of the planet. They needed to be worshipped. Uh, and that plays out in Revelation. Uh, not, not, a, not a good thing, but we see the effects of it. So what are your thoughts as we move through these 12 verses in this letter that is written specifically to um, the people, the Persian people, and to the Jews at that time. Uh, it's almost like squatter's rights, really. It really is. Um, nobody's here, so we'll just kind of move in. And it really, it's not their land. It's not their possession. Some of it had been passed down for generation upon generation. We had a lady one time, I was at a church, and she didn't have any money. She just didn't have hardly. She was living with her, her daughter, I believe it was, and she got to where she couldn't come to church, so we'd take her the communion on Sunday, and I told a friend of mine that would go with me, I'd say, let's go, and we'll sing a song together, and have a prayer, and do communion, and so we can have a little service, no longer than 15 minutes, but she loved that, and she said, I just wish there was something I could give to you, I just wish there was something I could give to you, we're like, don't worry about it, that's not what we're here for, she couldn't give a, a collection, she said, on the first day of the week, we're supposed to lay by in store, but I don't have anything, we kept saying, no worries, no worries, no worries. Well, fast forward um, about six, seven, eight months later, she passed away. She was in hospice care. And the daughter comes to the house and says uh, to the parsonage where I lived, 
I've got something I need to give to you. My mother wanted you to have it. I was like, okay, great. So I take it to the church, show it to the uh, men of the church, and she had donated her house to the church. That's huge. Now, the house was in Oklahoma. <laughs> so uh, I, I said, well, what, what's our obligation here? What are we supposed to do? I'm the first preaching job I ever had, so I, we didn't have elders. So two of our men drove to Oklahoma to look at the house. Well, it was grown up. You know, it hadn't been, nobody had been in it. And um, so they looked around at some things, and, and we didn't think anybody was living in it anyway. But they got around into the back and saw some items back there. And somebody had been squatting there for a little while because she hadn't been in the house in like 20 years. So they had to go through the process of trying to get this person out of the house, then clean the house up, and then get the house ready to sale. Needless to say, they didn't make a lot of money off of the house. But to me, it was the thought that this woman said, I don't have anything, but when I pass, and she never told anybody. She didn't tell her kids. She didn't tell us nothing. And the daughter was so happy that she was able to give this offering. But we had to go through the process of getting somebody out of it. And I've seen, I know people have done this even down here, believe it or not, in Baldwin County. Uh, people leave a condo for a few months, and you come back, somebody's living in it. Um, there are no laws on the books in Alabama for squatters' rights, by the way, just in case you want to check it out. They ha there are no rights here. That's not one of the things that we... But people will try to say other states have it, so we should. But that's basically what's happening, is they're just living on the land and trying to take over something that wasn't theirs. Yeah. Right. No, they were not. They weren't friends when they left. The northern and southern tribes didn't get along at all. At all. Uh, in fact, the northern tribes were trying to set up their own priesthood. That's at the end of Judges. You can see how that plays out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then we go over and say, uh, sorry. Uh, well, not oops. It was intentional. Um, There's a third one ready to go, by the way. But they, but they dropped them, and then they said, okay, now we'll come back and help you build. And uh, I, I would argue that was the right thing to do. Um, we would hope that somebody do that for us. And that's really a tough subject, too. Uh, I, I bought a book, uh, and I don't know that I'll ever teach through it and preach through it, because we'd have to provide pillows. Uh, you'd probably sleep through it. But I'm telling you, I would love to do a study of the battles of the Bible, uh, where certain places were, locations in the Bible where they had these battles, who won, who lost, what were the damages, um, just because from me, looking at how the geography changed in biblical times, you know, we, we look at certain nations. If you ask, we're going to have a 20-point question here in just a minute, and I want you to write down the answers, okay? Uh, which tribes were a part of the southern kingdom and which of the northern, okay? Which kings were good in Judah? You know, like these are things that we were like, well, we know it's in the Bible, but I haven't really studied that. And, and it's really, really neat when you begin to see how God protected these people on hill after hill and mountain after mountain. And when they come to Persia, he sends them back home. And I believe that God is speaking directly to these kings. I mean, there's, there's Nebuchadnezzar talking to God. So these kings are getting a word from the Lord like a prophet, like a priest, and they're saying, we are, we've got to send these people back. Darius is convicted, not because of the edict, but because of the God of the Jews. That's why he's sending them home. He believes this is what God wants. And he's also saying, by the way, pray for me and my kids and sacrifice for me and my sons. Did you notice that? Because he says, I want to make sure 
That if, they, if the, this God ever does what he did to all those giants, you know, if, this, if your God ever decides to part some Red Sea, I hope it's not on me. You know, you, you, hey, we're, we're giving you back everything and some. He's wanting to make sure. He's fearful not of, and this is important, he's fearful not of his peers or of the political pressure he will have. He's not fearful of the Samaritans. He fears God. And that's the reason why they're successful. Uh, because he believes God is leading him, and God is leading him to do it. And uh, it's important, too, we teach people about war and how it happens and the, and, the, and the collateral damage that happens. Yeah, exactly. And I wonder if that kept Darius up at night. I wonder if it kept any of these kings up at night. You know, we, the people before me were not very good. They weren't very nice. Did a lot of terrible things. How can we make it right? Um. And it's hard, too, because as a Christian, uh, we, we hate to see, we should hate to see vengeance and violence. Um, but sometimes there are what we'll call just wars that have to be waged um, to protect. And there has to be a balance there. Um, we have to pray that our, our leaders are wise enough to know when to execute um, a, a, an order and we also have to know that at some point we have to have a level of peace. I guess what I wrestle with as a, as a believer is there are some people that uh, we wait entirely too long to give them aid. Uh, and, and strategically through history, we have always grappled with that for generations. There are times in our past as a nation where we did not come to the aid of certain people. Uh, we did not come to the aid of certain nations. And when we look back 100 years, or sometimes even just 20 or 30 years, we start going, how come we didn't? How come it wasn't? How come this didn't happen? I think about that a lot with World War II. I wasn't there. Um, but, I, but I worry sometimes. We wait until the last possible minute to render aid. And, and Jesus sees a world in need, and he comes, and he dies on behalf of the people. And as Christians, we're supposed to set in, uh, walk in his shoes. And so it's very hard. We have to wrestle with that. I wrestle with that all the time. Because I think sometimes we, we're very slow because we don't want to um, you know, upset this person and that person, and we play that political game, and it becomes dangerous because eventually what happens is it hits us in, in the middle of our heart. It hits us at a time when we're not ready and in a place where we're not ready. And so... Uh, I really do pray for our leaders because I, I, I don't know what I would do if I were in their position. I probably would move very swiftly before I would wait and wait and wait and wait and see what happens. Um, in this case, obviously the king is going to say, it's time to make a decision. And I believe that uh, it was the right decision. We all do. But uh, at some point, somebody has to move forward. You can't just sit there and talk about it. There's only so much that can be done around a round table. Uh, if you've got people around you that are saying, we need to take action, then you probably need to take action. Um, but it is tough because the king has to grapple with, and, and even the Israelite uh, kings had to grapple with, do we send our boys to battle? Do we send our children uh, to the battlefield? Do we prepare ourselves to, to take action? And it's a, it's, a tough, it's a tough decision that has to be made. I, I wouldn't want to have to make that decision. Um, we probably would all disagree on, on when that should be done and how swiftly and how many people should go? How many soldiers should go? So there's a lot of stuff here that's on the, the pages in between Scripture 
that I know that the king had to worry about and the Jews had to worry about. They really don't have a military to speak of that they can defend themselves against the Samaritans. They need the help of the Persians. They need the king to send tax money. <laughs> they, they benefit from it. They're saying, yes, send us everything you got. So really, if you think about it, the temple of God, when Moses built it, was built out of gold and silver that came from Egypt. They, told, they were told to take everything from their neighbors. They took gold and silver. They used that to fashion all these items even the, even the uh, curtains, the rods on the curtains and the little, candle, the little can, the curtain holders. And now it is pagan money and gold and lumber that's going to rebuild the temple. Why is that important? Because God is not the God of Israel. He is the God of all. He's not the king of Israel. He's the king of of kings. And we're setting up the New Testament with these stories when God says, I don't want those lines anymore. Those lines are not going to be drawn. It's not one nation's greater than another nation. It's not one group of people is greater than another group of people. We're all equal. And so uh, that plays out through this too. Let's look at uh, verses 13 through 15 real quick. Then Tadani, governor of the region beyond the river, and I wonder what they were thinking when they read it, by the way. Man, it didn't go the way we thought. Uh, and then it says, um, Shethar Banzai and the companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they're both in our Bible. Haggai is the older prophet, Zechariah is the younger. And they built and finished according to the commandment of the God of Israel, and according to the command of Cyrus, the first one, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So it goes on through uh, at least three different kings. Now the temple, verse 15, was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So the temple is completed. Again, they got the money, the funds, from Persia, they got it, some of it from tax money and some of it from the king's own purse. Uh, and, and he didn't have to do that. But he says, uh, this is the right thing to do. And so they build the temple and it's completed. Uh, look at verses 16 through 18 as they, as they now dedicate it. It says, Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices to the dedication of the house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Then they assigned to the priests their divisions, the Levites to their divisions, over the service of God in Jerusalem, as is written in the book of Moses. So basically they pull out their Bibles, they say, this is what we've got to do now. If you're a Jew, this is the greatest thing you've ever seen. This is awesome. Temple's built. They're just piling animals up on the heap, right? They're just, oh, we, got, we need another bull up on there. You know, we need another goat up on there. Where did those animals come from? Some of them came from Persia, didn't they? Some of them came from the land that they just re-inherited. They got back. To a Jew, it's awesome. But what if you're a Persian or a Samaritan? 
I mean, God's, does he really need that many sacrifices? Right? Does it, if you're just being logical, after like the 395th bowl, would you just go, I think we've reached a good number here, right? Yeah, I think 200, I mean, I, I mean, at some point, at some point, you're going to run out of goats. Are y'all with me? At some point, I'm going to run out of cattle. And they are just heaping it on the altar, heaping it on the altar. That's a lot of barbecue meat. You know what I'm saying? I know you know what I'm saying. That's expensive. And that's a lot of property. But it is meant to be a visual reminder to Israel that when God gives you something, you give him something back. And when you give it back to God, he's going to give it right back to you. And that's what's going to happen in Israel. They, get, they basically put most of the animals they have in the sacrifice at the altar. Uh, I was, we were talking about this just this week. I don't remember if I was talking to Christy about it or Brandon or Missy and I were talking about um, a group of people that I knew, and, and I, don't, I don't remember the whole story, but anyways, they made the practice of everything that they got, and there are churches that do this too, by the way, everything they got that week, they either spent or gave away so that God would bless them the next week. In other words, they get their paycheck and they say, okay, so much is going to the church so much is going on food and whatever, but I'm going to end the week with zero dollars. Now, for me, I would be sitting at South Baldwin Hospital with an EKG monitor hooked up to me. I, I couldn't do that. I would be scared to death because I know next week's the mortgage, right? And next week after that is the electricity. Um, but there are some people that think like that, that say, I'm just going to give it, I'm just going to use it all. And then we'll see what God does next week. Uh, you'd be surprised what God will do if you, if you want to say test him. If you want to challenge your faith, you give as much as you can and you wait and see what God does with it. Our problem is sometimes that Billy addressed this Sunday morning is we think of it as giving to the church. You know, I'm giving it to the church. Well, the church got a lot of money. It's a big, big building here. You know, got a nice big budget out there, a lot of work and stuff. Do I really want to give to a church? Well, you're not giving to the church. You're giving to God. What God is doing with that money, blessing uh, our community, our church, family, and others in the community, we're collectively working towards a goal of reaching the world with the gospel. That's why we have a place. And it is nice. It's very nice. But ultimately, if we give, we don't give to the church. We're not giving the money to the elders or the preacher it's to the kingdom work. It's to the Lord. And that's really the way we should look at our offerings, is I'm going to give it to God. I don't know what he's going to do with it, you know. I don't know how it's going to be used, but I know that God is ultimately in control, and it's going to be good, because he is good. Whatever he does is good. Everything he touches is good. Um, but we're, we're a little cynical sometimes, because we see the way companies and organizations handle money, Right? And we say, I was talking to Brandon this week about there's a, a, a certain organization, I won't mention who they are, but I don't, I don't give any money to them anymore because I see the way they abuse those funds. So we, sometimes we think in a corporate mindset, we're giving to a church or to a group of men, elders, treasurer, minister, whatever, 
But we have to see it as they did with the temple. They're giving it to the Lord. And they're saying, Lord, now some of the priests are going to eat off that meat, right? They have the right to do that. But they're not given land. They didn't walk into a house with uh, furnished with, uh, with all the bedding and the closets full of clothes. Um, but they had to challenge themselves, which is why God really blesses this revival. Because they give a whole bunch, yeah. The the religions, or not the religions, but the nations that came before us, we we have a really hard time relating to. I have a hard time relating to people in the early 1900s. You know, I can't remember not having a phone. I remember a party line in my grandpa's house. That makes me really old. My first TV was black and white. You know, but I don't remember when there were no cars on the road. I don't remember when people rode their horses to school and to work, and that's just been in the last hundred plus years. So it's really hard for us to relate to the people of this day, but they didn't have the internet, and they didn't have electricity, and they didn't have books in their houses. Some of them couldn't even read. But what they did have, both for entertainment and for political use and for religious use, they memorized. They memorized. Moses tells them to memorize Scripture, but what they memorized was their lineage. When Joseph's heading to Bethlehem to give uh, the genealogy, it says, he's going to, to prove his, his uh, lineage back to Abraham, they memorized those names. They memorized their family names. Now, it's great here because it's just 70-plus years, so you probably know your grandparents' names, maybe even your great-grandparents' names. But in those days, they, they, when they buried their dead, they put them in caves, some of them in a specific, you know, almost like what we'd say a mausoleum. So every time they went by, they buried them in family cemeteries. We don't do that today. We don't do that. Some do, but not a lot. Um, and so they went regularly. I can remember in my lifetime that our family always got together on Memorial Day. You know why? Because that was Decoration Day, not Memorial Day. I never heard that. It was Decoration Day. And decoration Day is when we all went back to the home church and we all went back to the home cemetery, and we put out fresh flowers on the graves of all of our family members, aunts, uncles, cousins. I mean, they come out, and they mow, and they do all this stuff. We don't do that like we used to. Uh, the generation of today doesn't do that. Um, they don't know. They don't, they've never known that information. So this generation memorized their genealogy. And so they would have known who was really priests. And by being a priest, they were automatically, if they were of uh, 40 years, is that right, 40 years old? They were supposed to be um, 20 to 40. And when they then could retire out of ministry or out of the priesthood. But they knew the age, they knew the time, they knew the lineage, they knew everything. And so all they have to do is pull open the book of Leviticus and go, here you go, guys, here's the blueprint. Uh, If you follow this blueprint, then you'll know exactly how to worship. And that's what they do. They pull out the Bible. But those priests, they knew they were of the tribe of Levi. So they restore the priesthood, they restore the prophets, but they do not restore the kings. But they know who the king should be because they all followed Solomon's lineage. But it doesn't happen. They say, we don't want a king. And that was a smart move. Um, Does that help a little bit? Yeah. All right, so let's look on uh, the next little section here, beginning at verse 19 through 22. Says the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and Levites had purified themselves, all of them were ritually clean, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity. For their brethren, the priests, 
for themselves. Then the children of Israel, who had returned from the captivity together with all who had separated themselves from the fifth, uh, from the filth of the nations and of the land, in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. Uh, so they make this de- decision. They're all going to worship, we'll say, in spirit and in truth. Verse 22, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart at the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So they begin to offer uh, not only sacrifices, but they begin to go through the priests. Now let's test our Bible knowledge a little bit here. When was the feast of Passover supposed to be? Anybody know? Does anybody know when the feast of Pentecost was supposed to be? All right, so in the Old Testament, there are a couple places beginning back in the book of Exodus that that God gives a direct uh, date, a specific time, and a specific way to observe these things. And we're going to see as we move forward, um, the best that they can do is do it as quickly as possible. So there are a few times, at least once, where it's not done on the exact day, but they knew that it was so important to do it that they did it quickly. And they did it with joy, it says. And because of these feast days, the Passover would be, everybody stays in Jerusalem, sacrifice Passover lamb, day of atonement. And then they would sometimes stay around, stick around for Pentecost. Pentecost was 50 days after, the word penti, 50 days. Uh, They would stay in Jerusalem sometimes or near town, and they would come back and do the feast there for Pentecost. Uh, And then that would be like, um, we would say first fruits in spring. And then you've got the Feast of Tabernacles, which happens at the end of the year. So it's like a fall. The way I can help you remember this, you go camping. It's good to go camping in spring, but sometimes it's really neat to go camping in the fall and the leaves are turning and you put up a tent. That's a tabernacle. So think of always the Feast of Tabernacles happen in the fall. So Pentecost and Passover were always in the spring. And here they say, we just got to get back to doing things the way that we're supposed to, as quickly as possible. And, uh, and so Ezra's going to clean some of that up as he moves in, and we're going to see some changes to make sure that they stay in tune with the Word of God, stay on the pattern that God has designed for them. But the temple ultimately is completed, the feast days are, are done, and now they have to go home, and they're going to have to go back to their regular lives. This is a great time for these few weeks. Everybody's excited but uh, at some point, you got to go home. Uh, I, I hesitate to bring this up, but I'm going to anyway. Um, some of you have probably seen the Asbury Revival that they're calling on television, if you've watched this. Basically, what happened is a college got together for chapel one day. Uh, chapel ended, but chapel didn't end. They've kept singing and and, and doing all kinds of things for, for days and days and days. Is it still going? Does anybody know? Is it still going on? still going on tonight. Okay. My first thought was, man, that's, that's pretty cool. That's, that's, that's really, really a neat thing to do. But if I'm, if I'm a dad, you know, and I am, I got three kids in college right now. Where are they at? They're at a college. Well, if they're in the chapel... Night and day. What about those classes? Huh? They're missing classes. Is that an excused absence? I know that sounds, maybe sounds terrible to you, but I start thinking at some point, 
you have to get back to normal. At some point, you have to say, we're going to move away from this and go back to what we're supposed to do. I can almost guarantee you it will probably slow down when it comes summer because the beach is going to be calling for a lot of those kids. At some point, we can have a great service, a great worship. We can have a fabulous Sunday morning. Oh, wow, this was great. But we can't stay in here all the time. We have to get out into the world. The revival is awesome, but if we're truly revived and we have our fire lit, then we need to go out into the world and light the fire on on others. Let them know, hey, God is great and great things are happening. We can't keep it in here. Uh, I grew up in southwest Missouri most of my life, and there are groups of people that did exactly that. And they said, "We, we love what's happening here. We want to keep our little family together. And so we're going to build, you know, a little farm here, and they're going to have a farm over here. And uh, they have excluded the outside world. And some have said, we don't want electricity. Some have said, we don't want to live off the government. We're not going to pay our taxes, you know. So we're just going to kind of live over here in this little commune. And uh, Amish, Mennonites, and they've done that. They say, to the exclusion of all, we want to be our little group, and we're going to stay here, and we're not going to go outside this little area. They may ride their horses and their little carts into town and buy something and come right back, but for the most part, they live in their little community, and they don't leave. That is not what the church is about. We are not a community that just meets here and stays as long as we possibly can, and then we go away and we just wait to come back again. As the church, the body of Christ, the hands and feet, our greatest work is done when we leave here, when we go out and take it to other people. And, uh, you know, you never want to discourage or doubt the sincerity of people, but there are many times that things come up, we see things or hear things, or maybe we, we are somewhere where we see something happening and you go, man, that's got to be a God thing. There's no way that couldn't be a God thing. Um, But we know ultimately uh, there are many things from time to time that happen that we see and we hear that are not from God. The devil changes his appearance to be like an angel of light. And sometimes there are things that are meant to distract or to deter. Uh, As a great example, I'm trying to remember the Christian music artist. I don't remember his name right now. I'll, I'll think of it. I may mention it Sunday, but anyways, he was a part of a religious movement where they had gotten, this happened about 10 years ago, and uh, he quit the church. He was the music minister, and they would come in as soon as services were over with on Sunday, and they began planning the next service, and they'd say, okay, we're going to sing this song here put an X on the, on the stage, this lady's going to come and sing right here. She's the best soprano we got. She's going to sing here. Uh, the guitars have to be on this side because the drums are over here. Let's put a box around the drums because we've got some issues with too much of an echo. And uh, we want the piano on this side. And we want the fog machine here. And the, the screen needs to be here and here. And the lights need to position such. And since the lights are green and yellow, we need the ladies to wear this color. And they start the week before, as soon as service is over with, they were automatically planning the next week. And because it was so... Uh, so emphatic on entertainment, they had to have a better show the next Sunday. So I said, we got to kick it up a notch. We got to get a little, uh, little pep in our step. We gotta, and so they began to start 
And finally, he just said, I quit. I quit. And he comes back uh, sometime later and he writes a song. It's called The Heart of Worship. And he says, when it gets down to it, the heart of worship, it's all about you. It's all about God. And so uh, ultimately, God is the one who deserves all the glory, honor, and praise, not, not us. And, and we can get so worked up. It happens to all of us. Have you ever been listening to a song? And songs are meant to do this, by the way. That's why they're songs. You ever been listening to a song and you get the little tingle on your arm? You know, it just hits you just the right time. Or maybe you're watching a movie. In fact, I jokingly at home, you can ask Misty, I do this all the time. If I don't laugh, I'll cry. So usually if it's a real sappy moment where everybody cries, I'll go, oh, you know, because I, I don't want to cry. And then if I cry, she'll think I'm faking. But uh, sometimes we get emotionally wrapped up and emotionally charged into something. And uh, that is sometimes what happens. The majority of the time, when different religious groups get wrapped into that emotional bubble, the emphasis is not on what God is doing, it's what on what's happening with everybody else. And uh, that becomes dangerous. The emphasis is on man. We're supposed to worship in spirit and in truth. So, uh, but it is a challenge. It is a challenge. All right. Any other thoughts on that? All right. Matt Redman. That's it. Matt Redman. That's it. The heart of worship is all about you. I did find it interesting, though, when he told the story of why he wrote the song, he still used a piano. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. He wrote it on a piano, but he was like, let's just get back to God and a piano, but nothing else. You know, I love, the, I love there's a, a man, he did a cartoon, it was in the newspaper, and it shows this whole wall full of organ. I mean, floor to ceiling. I mean, up over the pipes, a huge. And this guy comes walking in with his electric guitar. And the, the priest looks at him and he goes, no, that's too distracting in worship. <laughs> so the guitar was bad, but the giant wall full of organ was okay. So ultimately it should be all about the Lord. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, visit our website at rayreynoldsrap.com. If you'd like to contribute to the show, content suggestions, uh, questions, prayer requests, or even if you just want to reach out to us, you can email us at rayreynoldsrap at gmail.com. Have a great day as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible correspondence course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.